Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK. The capital B, capital T, and a capital UK, or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. Now, let me take you back through time to the year 1839. As you can imagine, lots of things were happening. On January the 2nd, the first photograph of the moon is taken by French photographer Louis Daguerre. And later that year, on June the 22nd, he receives a patent for his camera, which became commercially available in September for the price of a mere 400 francs. Also in March that year, the Boston Morning Post first records the use of OK. And the royal scandal at the time was the bedchamber crisis. After the UK Prime Minister Lord Melbourne announced his resignation, Queen Victoria asked several MPs to form a new government and they insist on the condition that the Queen dismiss several of her personal attendants, the ladies of the bedchamber, for political reasons. Our event, though, takes place in November. But first... Let me tell you a little bit about the man that we'll be talking about. His name is John Frost. John Frost was born at the Royal Oak, Newport in Monmouthshire on the 25th of May, 1784. The son of John Frost and his wife Sarah, who happened to be the landlady of the said pub on Mill Street. His father died when John was very young and his mother remarried twice. His mother too died early and so... John went to live with his grandparents. Aged about 16, Frost was apprenticed to a tailor in Cardiff. In 1804, he was an assistant woolen draper in Bristol, and the following year, he worked in London as a merchant tailor. On the 24th of October, 1812, Frost married Mary Geach. Her maiden name was Morgan. She was the widow of a timber dealer, with whom he had eight children, between 1815 and 1826. In 1823, after a series of disputes with a local solicitor, Thomas Prothero, over the contents of his uncle's will, a libel action led to his imprisonment for six months in cold bath fields. His experience in prison changed him, and on his release he turned to radical politics. In 1835, he became successfully a magistrate, an improvement commissioner, a poor law guardian 
and the mayor of Newport. His association with the Chartist movement began only in October 1838, but he was elected a delegate from Monmouthshire to the Chartist Convention in London, which was held from February to September in 1839. And occasionally during that convention, he was the chairman, where his tie-breaking vote would resolve the meetings. After the convention, when he returned to Newport, he became involved in militant Chartist activities that culminated in the street battle on November the 4th. A profile of John Frost appeared alongside his portrait in the March 10th, 1839 issue of the Charter. John Frost is about 50 years of age, 5 foot 6 or 7 in height, somewhat stoutly built and apparently possessing much muscular strength. Although Mr Frost's face is by no means handsome, its benevolence makes it highly pleasing, notwithstanding the powerful expression of purpose which is its predominant characteristic. His manners are quiet and courteous, gentlemanly, but singularly independent. Mr Frost has been an advocate of the principles contained in the People's Charter for a period of upward of 20 years, and he's not only a sincere member of the convention, but one of the most industrious and talented delegates of which it is composed. The word of the week is allotricious. Some people want to be it, and those who are, don't want to. This word means, you have curly hair. Now let me tell you a little bit more about the Chartists. The Chartists campaigned for basic democratic rights, taken for granted today, but overlooked in the Great Reform Act of 1832. Only property owners were allowed to stand for Parliament, and that excluded most ordinary people. So, their immediate object was political reform, and whose ultimate purpose was social regeneration. Its programme of political reform was laid down in the document known as the People's Charter, issued in the spring of 1838. Following a split in the movement, Frost sided with the physical force Chartists, who advocated violent action to achieve reform. This outraged the Home Secretary, Lord John Russell, and in March 1839, Frost was sacked as a magistrate. Around Britain, and especially in South Wales, discontent was brewing. While Frost made several speeches discouraging violence, the arrest of Henry Vincent, a prominent Chartist, on the 7th of May, 1839, raised the temperature further. One of Frost's contemporaries, William Price, described Frost's stance at the time of the Newport Rising as being akin to putting a sword in my hand and a rope around my neck. Despite Frost's request for calm, the movement in Monmouthshire got out of hand and at a secret meeting at the Coach and Horses Inn in Blackwood on Friday the 2nd of November, it was decided to hold a great demonstration at Newport in the early hours of Monday morning by three different groups of Chartists, one led by Frost to march from Blackwood from Evervale and one from Pontypool under William Jones. 
The three groups were mainly made up of miners and were to meet at Riskar, but Mother Nature had other plans. A storm raged all night, so all of them arrived late. Unfortunately, this gave the Newport authorities time to learn of what was happening and prepare to confront the coming armed Chartists. Special constables were hastily sworn in. The known Chartists of Newport were arrested and shut up in the Westgate Hotel, where the mayor held 30 soldiers in reserve. The Chartist troops, led by Frost, proceeded to the hotel at 9.30am and demanded the surrender of the Chartist prisoners. When they rushed to the door, though, the soldiers posted in the hotel started firing their muskets. 10 to 15 Chartists died instantly. About 50 were wounded. The whole event was over in 20 minutes. The Monmouthshire Merlin reported that the firing of the troops was steady and murderous, both on the rioters in front of the hotel and on those that had rushed into the premises. Several unhappy wretches fell in view of the house, five or six mortally wounded, and were killed, and several wounded inside, it said. During the melee, the mayor of Newport was wounded and had two escapes from death. A Chartist was about piercing his body with a pike when he was shot dead by a soldier. The mayor was nearly shot dead himself by the military, but someone pushed the gun aside. The heat of the conflict lasted about a quarter of an hour when the defeated Chartists took their heels in all directions, throwing away their arms and abandoning their dead and dying. The Chartist miners were in a very bad strategic position, and the firing took them by surprise. When they withdrew, they met the contingent of Williams, and outside the town, the column of Jones. The Times estimated the strength of the Chartist army at 8,000 and the damage at 20. Overall, the Battle of Westgate lasted only 25 minutes, but at its close, some 22 people lay dead or dying, and nearly 50 had been injured. An eyewitness report spoke of one man wounded with a gunshot, lying on the ground pleading for help until he died an hour later. The dead bodies that were left in Westgate Square were taken away during the night by soldiers and buried without fuss at Willow's churchyard as the authorities were still afraid of more uprisings happening. The reprisal by the local council followed immediately. The three commanders and 150 Chartists were arrested in a short time. The rumour spread that the Chartist insurgents intended to take Cardiff on the 5th of November, 1839. This news seized the Cardiff magistrates with panic. In addition to mobilising the special constables, they built up serious military defences and the crew of an American vessel lying at anchor in the port were also brought in to aid the authorities. After Newport, however, the Welsh valleys were wrapped in quiet and even the English manufacturing districts were paralysed for a short time. 
A reward of £100 was offered for Frost's capture and he was arrested by solicitor and the clerk, Thomas Jones Phillips, and charged with high treason. Early in 1840, along with Jones and Williams, they were tried at Monmouth's Shire Hall. All three were found guilty and became the last men in Britain to be sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered. The Chartists across the country stood as one man for the Newport leaders who were under sentence of death. Other Chartist leaders, free on bail, rose to speak on their behalf. One, called O'Connor, offered one week's income of the Northern Star for a frost fund and retained one of the best lawyers of the time, Sir Frederick Pollock, as defence counsel. Following a huge public outcry, however, these sentences were discussed by the Cabinet and on the 1st of February, the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, announced that the executions were commuted to transportation for life. For the book of the week, I've chosen Twenties Girl by Sophie Kinsella. This is a really good curl-up-in-a-corner comfort read. When the spirit of Laura's great-aunt Sadie, a feisty, demanding girl from the firm ideas of fashion, love and the right way to dance, appears and has one request. She wants Laura to find a missing necklace that's been in Sadie's possession for more than 75 years because Sadie cannot rest without it. Remember, Sophie Kinsella wrote the whole Shopaholic series, so you're in for a good read. John Frost wrote a letter to his wife, Mary, from the Mandarin convict ship, docked at Falmouth on the 28th of February, 1840. It gives us an insight into his mood at the time and what was really worrying him. My dearest Mary, while sailing down the channel on Wednesday evening, our main and mizzen topmasts were carried away and we were obliged to put in for a refit. I thought I would embrace the opportunity of dropping you a few lines. I am quite uncertain as to our sentence. I have nothing but reports to guide me. You, probably, may be better informed. I have just seen a gentleman, high in authority, and his opinion is that it would be most imprudent that you should remove to follow me. Besides, my love, life is uncertain. Suppose that anything should happen to me. What would become of my family in a foreign country without a friend? Remember what you owe to our dear children. Be assured that at present it is to them you must show your affection for your husband. Once more... A belief that you and my family are as comfortable as you can be in my absence would greatly lessen my affliction. Alas, my children, my unprotected children, those pledges of our mutual love and affection haunt me day and night. My first prayer and my last prayer is for them, and that heaven may protect them. Branded as I am with the infamy of treason, a crime I have never contemplated, I beg of you to give them the blessing of their wretched father and to assure them that, though an exile, my hands are raised each morning and night to heaven for them. God bless you, my love. Ever yours, John Frost.
On reaching Vanderman's land, which is now modern Tasmania, Frost was immediately sentenced to two years' hard labour for making a disparaging remark about Lord John Russell, the colonial secretary. Frost was indentured to a local storekeeper and spent three years working as a clerk before becoming a schoolteacher for eight years, when he was granted his ticket of leave. Chartists in Britain continued to campaign for the release of Frost. Thomas Duncombe pleaded Frost's case in the House of Commons, but his attempt to secure a pardon in 1846 was unsuccessful. Duncan refused to be defeated and in 1854 he persuaded the Prime Minister, Lord Aberdeen, to grant Frost a pardon on the condition that he never returned to Britain. Together they toured the country, lecturing on the unfairness of the British system of government. As for the Chartist movements, well... Chartism remained a potent force for some years after the Newport Rising, a number of the new charters being presented to Parliament in 1842 and 1848. They made little impression, although the lobby for political reform continued. Chartism as a separate movement, however, was never as strong again as it had been in 1839, when, apparently, there were possibly 25,000 chartists just in Monmouthshire. Support for Chartism began to wane after the 1850s and the movement eventually just petered out, as the working classes achieved many of their aims through legislation and the growth in power of the Liberal Party at the end of the 19th century. Thank you once again to all of you who have been in touch with me. Now, I'd like to mention a question that I had from a Michelle Garish. She asks, after listening to a couple of the episodes, what diagnosis today's mental health professionals would give some of the people involved in the stories? She was talking in particular of the story I did a couple of weeks ago of the stranger murder, the sad demise of Lucy Derrick, who was killed on her way to meet her boyfriend. I've often wondered that myself when doing the research for these stories and looking through the eyes of today and the stories of yesterday, what our medical professionals would have said about these people that did these awful crimes. But to be honest, it'd be interesting to hear what you think. You can get in touch with me by looking for me on Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct using info at backtracker.co.uk You're listening to Alice on the Backtracker History Show. And now, shall we continue with our story? After receiving a free pardon in May 1856 as a result of the general pardon granted after the successful conclusion of the Crimean War, John Frost returned to Bristol in England on the 12th of July and settled in Stapleton, in the outskirts of the city, after 14 years in exile. At about 3pm, hundreds of people were gathered on the bridge and the river in Newport, 
waiting for the packet ship from Bristol that would bring Charter's leader, John Frost, to them. As soon as the steamer was in sight, cheers and applause were heard. Newport had provided a coach, decorated with evergreens and drawn by two proud horses, to take the party to a reception. But the crowd had other ideas. When John and his party were seated in their carriage, the crowd took it upon themselves to unhitch the horses and pull the carriage themselves. They were taken to the Temperance Hotel, which was decorated with flags showing pictures of Frost, Williams and Jones. Charter's leaders. Frost addressed the crowds from a hotel balcony and they loved it. He was also welcomed in London but never regained his status as a radical leader. On the 31st of August he delivered two lectures on the horrors of convict life that were later printed. The following year he published a letter to the people of Great Britain and Ireland on transportation showing the effects of irresponsible power on the physical and moral conditions of convicts. Although it appears that it was his intention to write a series of letters on this subject, no more were published. Mary, his wife, had died a year after his return, and Frost continued to publish articles advocating reform, as well as pursuing an interest in spiritualism, until his death, aged 93, in 1877. Frost was buried in the churchyard, of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Hawfield, Bristol, in accordance with his will. What happened to the other two Charters leaders? Well, William Jones, who was a watchmaker, died in Launceston, New South Wales, in 1873, and Nathaniel Williams, who at the time of the Chartist riots kept a beer shop at Colebrookdale near Nantanglo, also died at Launceston in 1874. In the 1980s, Richard Frame found Frost's lost gravesite and organised a new headstone to be created and erected on the site with the aid of a grant from Newport Council. The new headstone was unveiled by Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock. John Frost Square in Newport City Centre was named in his honour. A 1978 mural of the Newport Rising by Kenneth Budd in the square was demolished in 2013 to make way for the new Friars Walk development. A trust was set up to commission a new memorial with £50,000 of funding provided by the Newport City Council. In 2019, it was the 180th anniversary of the event and Oliver Budd, the son of the original mural artist, unveiled four smaller panels showing replica images of the original mural based on his father's own drawings. You can find it in the site of the former toilets in Keffin Road, Rogerston. In 1991, three statues by Christopher Kelly commemorating the Chartist Newport Rising, entitled Union, Prudence and Energy, were installed outside the Westgate Hotel in Newport. The march on Newport in November 1839, for which Frost is remembered, has been viewed as either a peaceful demonstration or as part of a national conspiracy to overthrow the government. There is strong evidence of a high degree of planning, confounded by a series of last-minute changes of plan. The Newport Rising was indeed part of a wider plan of insurrection, and was in fact the last on British mainland. 
A plaque has been added to the wall of the Mint in Carlion. Reading. In the last quarter of the 20th century, we have taken the right to vote for granted. This was not always so, and in 1839, after the failure of petitioning the government of the day, the men of Britain and South Wales sought to change the system through marches and demonstration. This was known as the Chartist Uprising. John Jenkins, the owner of Mind House and the master of the Ponthier Tin Plate Works, concerned for his property, constructed the Mind Wall in order to keep marauding demonstrators out. The wall in front of you is what remains of his efforts. We know that 22 died in the Newport Rising, but we can't be sure how many eventually died from the events of that day. Many would have gone home and died of their horrific wounds inflicted, and they would have been buried quietly. For some reason, ten of the dead bodies that were left at Westgate were put under guard in the hotel stables. The youngest of the dead was George Shell. A letter to his parents was found on his person, although some suspected it was written by the authorities. The letter says, I shall this night be engaged in a struggle for freedom, and should it please God to spare my life, I shall see you soon. But if not, grieve not for me. I shall fall in a noble cause. My tools are at Mr Cecil's, and likewise my clothes. A friend of George Shell, called George Horwell, would later reminisce. George Shell was the brave youth who was shot in the Westgate Hotel. He lodged with us, or in the same house, I forget which. He often used to take me on his knee at mealtimes and would dance me up and down as I sat astride his foot. On the very morning before he left on his fatal expedition, he kissed me tenderly as if I were his own. time for some back in the day facts. On the 29th of August 1958, Michael Jackson, the singer, was born. On the 29th of August in 1882, the Ashes were instituted in cricket between England and Australia after the Sporting Times published an obituary on English cricket, concluding, the body will be cremated and the Ashes taken to Australia. On the 31st of August 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, died after sustaining fatal injuries in a car crash in Paris. On the 1st of September 1928, the Morris Minor car was launched by Morris Motors at Oxford. And on Sunday the 2nd of September to Thursday the 6th of September 1666, the Great Fire of London swept through the central parts of the city. The fire gutted the medieval city of London inside the old Roman city wall. The fire is estimated to have destroyed 70,000 of the city's 80,000 homes. Yet there was only six verified deaths. The fire was famously chronicled by Samuel Heaps and John Evelyn. John wrote... God grant my eyes may never behold the like, now seeing above ten thousand homes all in one flame, 
the noise and the crackling and the thunder of the impetuous flames, ye shrieking of women and children, the hurry of people, the fall of towers, houses and churches, was like a hideous storm, and the air all about so hot and inflamed, that at last one was not able to approach it. London was but no more. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. I do hope you enjoyed today's tale. A huge thank you to Simon Green, Steve Shepard, and Molly Jeffries for bringing that story to life. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>